Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Volume. Hoops Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. The football season is coming, and there's no better place to start making every moment more than with FanDuel. I just love using this app. It's super user-friendly and safe. They have such a deep repertoire of odds and markets for every sport, and they have same-game parlays. You guys remember the same-game parlays that Liv Moods and I were throwing out during the NBA playoffs for the volume. Those were a ton of fun. All around, it's by far the best sports gambling experience I've come into contact with. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. Again, promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. one 877 Hope NY or text Hope NY to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, 
right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. I hope all of you guys had a great week and that you're enjoying your weekend so far. We've got a completely packed show today. We're going to continue our top 25 NBA players list with number 15 through number 11. And then here at the top of the show, we're going to go over the latest proposed Russell Westbrook trade, this time involving the Utah Jazz and a couple of really interesting potential players heading back towards the Lakers. We're going to go over the details of that trade, what I think about the players involved, as well as where I would rank it compared to some of the other proposed Russell Westbrook trades that have been thrown out over the course of this summer. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss show announcements or any other content that I put out. And then last but not least, if you can't finish one of these shows and you can't get back to YouTube, we do release them in podcast form wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. All right. So on that note, let's talk about this potential Lakers deal. So we've seen the Kyrie deal that's been proposed, which appears to be completely on hold depending on what happens with Kevin Durant, right? We've also heard of this uh, Buddy Heald and Miles Turner trade with the Indiana Pacers, one that I like a lot as a backup option uh, to the Kyrie deal. Two really good, solid NBA starters potentially returning to the Lakers there. Both of those deals in the immediate future appeal to be appear to be held up based on whether or not the Lakers are willing to include that second first-round draft pick, the 2029 draft pick, which who knows whether or not they'll uh, ever be willing to include that. I hope that they will if it, if it comes down to whether or not they have to take this roster into camp or not. Uh, um, Jovan Buha, who covers the Lakers for The Athletic, a friend of mine, he uh, put out a tweet uh, the other day in one of his reports about a proposed uh, closing lineup for the Lakers this year. And it was like Austin Reeves, Troy Brown Jr., Juan Toscano Anderson, LeBron James, and Anthony Davis. And then I wanted to be like, okay, like if you don't think you have a contender and you're not willing to trade those picks and this is the lineup you're going to march out there this year, you might as well trade LeBron James and Anthony Davis at that point. I really like Austin Reeves. He's one of my favorite young players in the league, but he's not ready to be a, you know, the third best player in a closing lineup, right? And Juan Toscano Anderson and Troy Brown Jr. are guys who should be coming off the bench. They're NBA players, but they shouldn't be starting for a contender. So they're, they're just nowhere near where they need to be. So you either need to put the picks on the table to make a deal happen, or you need to punt all of this and just send LeBron and Anthony Davis somewhere else to a team that actually cares about trying to win basketball games. But hopefully, this is all just about leverage, and the Lakers will eventually put that second draft pick on the table. So we have a third potential Russell Westbrook trade, this time involving the Utah Jazz. Michael Skoda of Hoops Hype reported this yesterday. The deal would involve, it's a three-team deal that would help facilitate the Jazz sending Donovan Mitchell to the Knicks. And in that deal, Patrick Beverly would be coming back to the Lakers. And then two additional players for salary filler. From the Jazz, it would either be Jordan Clarkson, Malik Beasley, or Boyan Bogdanovich. And from the Knicks, it would be either Derrick Rose or Evan Fournier. So in both cases, I'm going to tell you which players that I prefer, and I'll tell you why. So I actually really like Malik Beasley's game. I just think that the Lakers are in desperate need of guys that are taller than six foot six. So I don't really see the point of going that route. I'd like to see them have some more lineup flexibility too. So right now, with the way that the Lakers roster is put together, they've got two decent backup bigs, right? And Thomas Bryant and Damian Jones. And then you've got Anthony Davis, who really should be playing the five, but with the way that the roster is put together because they have so many short basketball players elsewhere on the roster, Anthony Davis at this point would have to play the vast majority of his minutes at the four. You'd have to lean into interior size, 
playing one of Bryant or Jones with AD at the four, LeBron at the three. That way your smaller perimeter players are less damaging because you've got good aggregate size with the totality of the lineup, right? If you get somebody that's taller than 6'6", like a starting level NBA player who's taller than 6'6", into that three spot, that gives you the flexibility of downsizing to Anthony Davis at the five while maintaining the necessary requisite uh, uh, aggregate size to be able to put together a functional, you know, uh, NBA lineup that can hold up under the physicality, especially when you get to the playoffs. So as much as I like Malik Beasley, I think he's just a touch too small. I've never been a huge fan of Jordan Clarkson's game. Uh, very, very inefficient score. I think specifically uh, what he does, it, it can it can be some value in the regular season in terms of innings eating, just because you can get somebody out there that can get shots up. But I don't find him to be deeply impactful in a playoff setting. Still a negative defensive player at this point, which puts me to Boyan Bogdanovich. Now, you guys have heard me talk a lot about Boyan over the course of this last postseason because he's the kind of player that I value as a role player a lot because he can attack mismatches as a big wing. He's six. Eight, but he's a big 6'8". He can shoot the ball well, and he's got a good back-to-the-basket game. He's actually a very good isolation player. He's a guy that can score, you know, 20-plus points on any given night to help you as a, you know, as an ancillary scoring piece. And then on the defensive end of the floor, he's not great, particularly when it comes to guarding quick perimeter players, but he is good at guarding big wings. He can, he's, uh, he's a good post defender. He's good at guarding your Kawhis and your LeBrons of the world because he's big and strong, and he doesn't give ground in the physicality of fighting for position. So again, you're not going to get perfect players in a Russell Westbrook trade. I've been talking about this nonstop over the course of this last six months, but when you're trading Russell Westbrook and you only have distant first round draft picks, you're not going to be getting back all stars. Okay. So you got to change your perception of the type of player that you're targeting. You're going to be targeting NBA starter level players that have strengths and that have weaknesses. But Bogdanovich's strength is that he can score the basketball, particularly against mismatches, smaller players on the floor. Specifically with the Lakers, that's a great value add because if you've got big, strong defenders, they're probably going to be on LeBron James and Anthony Davis. So there's a good chance that Bogdanovich would consistently draw smaller defensive players that he'd be able to take advantage of. Then in spot-up roles, he's a good spot-up shooter. Not a great spot-up shooter, but he's a good spot-up shooter. So I like him there in terms of the spacing. And then last but not least, he's big. And so like I said, you could slot him into that three spot, which allows you the lineup flexibility of playing LeBron James and Anthony Davis at the four and five. They, they need more guys like that to be able to consistently play that way, but at least you'd have that punch. You'd be able to shift gears between playing big and playing small. Whereas if you don't have a guy like Bogdanovich on the roster, I'm just not sure that you can play Anthony Davis at the five at all, unless you want to go with Stanley Johnson in the closing lineup. And I like Stanley Johnson, and he's a good basketball player, but I, I ideally you want him coming off the bench for you in a smaller role, particularly kind of unleashing him as a perimeter defender against some other team score for short bursts over the course of the game. So out of those three guys, out of Jordan Clarkson, Boyan Bogdanovich, and Malik Beasley, I prefer Bogdanovich. Now, Patrick Beverly, who's also included in the deal, I, I'm not a huge fan of him as a as a player and as a person. I think he's kind of a jerk. I admire the fact that he's grinded his way into the NBA, but like stupid things like him shoving Chris Paul in the back after a playoff series, I just have no respect for that. I think he's a little bit like into the antics and the antics. I, the antics don't interest me. I'm, I'm a basketball purist. You guys know that. I feel the same way when it comes to ref baiting and things along those lines. Not a huge fan of Patrick Beverly overall in terms of just the kind of guy he is, but as a basketball player, as a guy who can defend at the point of attack, 
he's immensely valuable, particularly with this type of roster construct. You know, I talk a lot about the difference between positional defenders and disruptive defenders, right? So positional defenders, they're not overly aggressive. They give ground, but they make you shoot over the top, and they typically are bigger and slower. Now, disruptive defenders are typically quicker and smaller, and their role is completely different. They are being aggressive defensively. They're trying to get into your shooting pocket. They're trying to disrupt your handle, and they will give up dribble penetration, but they'll also force a lot of turnovers. That kind of defender is a little bit more feasible along alongside great rim protection because when you're going to be giving up dribble drive penetration, right? And Patrick Beverly is so committed to the defensive end of the floor that when he does give up dribble drive penetration, he'll either continue trying to disrupt from behind or he will get into his next spot in rotation. So alongside a guy like Anthony Davis and LeBron James, who's a great backline defender when he's bought in, I actually really like Patrick Beverly there. He's turned into a a pretty solid spot up shooter. Like he's not an offensive liability by any stretch of the imagination. He actually flashed some bits of good offensive creation um, uh, for Minnesota in that playoff run, albeit against uh, a guard in John Morant, who's really bad defensively at this point in his career. But Patrick Beverly, say what you want about the guy. And again, like I said, not a huge fan of the guy, but... With the Lakers, he's legitimately a good fit, a guy that would help them with their current roster construct and much better than any option they have at the point of attack in the backcourt at this specific point in time. So with the Jazz, I would be targeting Patrick Beverly and Boyan Bogdanovich. Now, the three names that have been thrown out from the New York Knicks, potentially a salary filler, are Derrick Rose, Evan Fournier, and Cam Reddish. So I'm going to dismiss Cam Reddish out of hand because I just think I typically like the taller, athletic, defensive-minded wing, right? But right now, he's just too young and I don't think he'd be usable, particularly in a playoff setting. I want, you know, if I'm running the Lakers, I'm going to be targeting players that I believe can close playoff games for me. And right now, I've only got two that I know for sure can in LeBron James and Anthony Davis, and I've got a third and a maybe in Austin Reeves if he gets his jump shot to the point where it's reliable, which I believe he could. It's de- definitely doable, But and there's lots of reporting coming out that Austin Reeves has been putting on muscle and, and working on his shooting nonstop in the offseason, so we'll see, but that's, uh, that's a little bit of a question mark, right? I know Patrick Beverly can play playoff minutes for me. I know Boy and Bogdanovich can play playoff minutes for me there. So that gives me four players that I can trust. So uh, I would like to target a fifth guy that I can slide into that lineup. Derek Rose... I like what he's done in the last phase of his career after his injury and turning himself into a servable, a serviceable backup point guard in the NBA. But to me, he's a backup. He's a guy that you bring on, bring in off the bench to run your bench offense. And so I wouldn't be targeting him. I'd be targeting Evan Fournier. Now, Evan Fournier as a lead shot creator, like he was for the Knicks for a long time, it's going to be underwhelming from time to time. But if you think of him as a second side creator, a guy that's going to be constantly attacking a already compromised defense and off ball with how good he is as a spot-up shooter, I really like his fit with the Lakers. So Evan Fournier would be the player I'd be targeting from the Knicks as salary filler. And then we start to get a pretty interesting closing lineup there. Patrick Beverly, Evan Fournier, Boyan Bogdanovich, LeBron James, and Anthony Davis is a feasible closing lineup with plenty of shooting and plenty of size and a hell of a lot better than that proposed closing group that Jovan Buha threw out uh, when he was pointing out the inadequacies of the Lakers roster at this point. Overall, compared to all of the uh, Lakers trades that I've seen thrown out involving Russell Westbrook, I'd rank this third. I'd put the Kyrie trade first because, again, you guys got to think, what Kyrie does with the basketball is completely impossible to replicate 
and defensively, it's completely impossible to scheme for or prepare for. Like, he's unguardable, right? Like, he, if what he does in the postseason is is impossible to replace. So, you'd, so, for instance, I would rather have Kyrie Irving and Stanley Johnson in my closing lineup than a Buddy Heald and a Miles Turner. Because even though I know Buddy Heald and Miles Turner are both starter-level NBA players, there's a chance that when they get to the, the highest stages against the best defenses, their impact will be limited to a certain extent because they don't have that super high-end elite skill, right? That the three The three-level shot creation that Kyrie has. With Stanley Johnson and Kyrie Irving, I know Kyrie Irving is going to bring that unguardability to a playoff series, which has a great deal of value. And then the third best trade that I've seen thrown out there because I would I put Heald in Turner second just because I think Turner brings a really interesting defensive dynamic with Turner and Anthony Davis in the backcourt. Buddy Heald, obviously, and uh, one of the best uh, three-point shooters that we have in the league right now. I've broken it down on the show before, but the dynamic of having him running pick and roll with Anthony Davis is really interesting to me because they can't switch it because of the differences in size as opposed to a LeBron James-Anthony Davis pick and roll that typically ends in a switch. With Buddy Heald running pick and roll with Anthony Davis, you're going to have to chase him over the top of the screen because he's a shooting threat. So many guards that have played for the Lakers over the course of the last few years, like Russell Westbrook and Dennis Schroeder and and Rajon Rondo, everybody's going underneath those screens, which makes them so much easier to guard because they're not willing shooters. Getting a guy like Buddy Heald in there as a a knockdown three-point shooter coming off the top of those screens is a really interesting dynamic to open up a LeBron, excuse me, an Anthony Davis, Buddy Heald pick and roll. We've talked about this before, and I don't want to go too much deeper, but it just is so much harder to guard when you have to go over the screen versus going under the screen. If you go back to my, I I did it while I was on vacation, but if you go back and look up my video that I did on the Buddy Heald uh, proposed trade. Check that out. I went further into the X's and O's of that specific dynamic. But I'd put that trade second. But third, I would put this potential proposed Utah Jazz trade. I like it because I'm getting three NBA starters back in Patrick Beverly, Boyan Bogdanovich, and Evan Fournier. All three of them in bigger roles are going to struggle for one reason or another when they're being depended on. Like the Utah Jazz were depending on Bogdanovich to create offense because of the struggles of Donovan Mitchell and Mike Conley in that series, right? Like Patrick Beverly was was putting the basketball on the floor and trying to create for himself a lot against the Memphis Grizzlies. Evan Fournier was depended on a lot as a creator for the Knicks. With this Lakers team, they'd be downsized into roles that are more appropriate for their skill set, and I think they'd be good fits there. So that's three really solid options there. And all three of them, I think, would absolutely make the Lakers a legitimate championship contender. Maybe not a top-tier contender, but they put them in that second tier where like, if things break right, they can win. If LeBron James stays healthy, if Anthony Davis recaptured his 2020 uh, form and those guys are all available, that's a, that's a team that can win a championship. And so that, to me, is 100% worth it to put those two picks on the table. The only thing that is completely inexcusable as an option here for the Lakers is letting all three of these deals slip away and coming with the current roster into camp. All right, without any further ado, let's get started uh, continuing our top 25 players in the NBA list with number 15, Devin Booker. So in this regular season, he averaged 27-5-5 and on 58% true shooting. That's excellent. In this postseason run, he averaged 23-5-4 and on 59% true shooting, so a four-point drop in his scoring. One thing I'll say in his defense there is he had a hamstring injury. 
any one of you guys out there who's had a hamstring injury before, I had one shortly before I started playing in college and I re-injured it two additional times before I finally got it healed. But any of you guys who have had this injury know it specifically hurts you with explosiveness. You could play a lazy brand of basketball and your hamstring will do okay if it's somewhere far, somewhat far along in its recovery. But as soon as you start really trying to explode and take long steps, that's where it really tests that hamstring. And that's a very important thing to have uh, as a as a scorer in the NBA, so him having his hamstring, you know, compromised, even if it was just partially, I would get I would cut him some slack, especially after how good he looked in the playoff run in 2021. His final five games versus Dallas, um, which they lost four of, he averaged 22 five and four on 42 percent field goals. He had 20 assists with 24 turnovers, so a pretty ugly end to the Dallas series. Hard to look entirely past especially because of his shot profile, which we'll get a little bit further into here in a little bit involving his pull-up jump shooting. But I I would like to cut him some slack over that hamstring injury. He's as well-rounded of a three-level scorer as we have in the league. Now, when we, you know, I use that phrase a lot, three-level score, but there's a difference between the three-level score in name and the three-level score in practice. It's kind of like when I'm talking about shooting. You're either a shooter or a maker. You know, anybody can be a shooter. You're just taking shots. But a maker is someone who can consistently make them, right? Well, it's the same thing with the three-level scoring thing. There are guys who have the ability to three-level score, but it doesn't actually manifest in balanced scoring. You know, there you have there are three-level scorers out there that rely too much on their jump shot. You know, Paul George used to be like this, although he's gotten better as as we'll talk about when we get to him later on in the list. But you actually need to, in practice, have balance in your offense to make yourself difficult to guard. If you're good at shooting threes, good at scoring in mid-range, good at scoring in the short range, and good at scoring around the rim, but you don't actually try to get to the rim, then players will start to sit up on your jump shot and you'll have issues. When you start to really dive into Devin Booker's numbers, there's remarkable balance. So check this out. In um, in the regular season, he averaged two restricted area makes per game at 68%, which is really good for a, for a guard, a scoring guard like him. Two additional paint field goals per game outside of the restricted area at 46%. That's really good. Three mid-range jump shots per game at 47%. That's outstanding. And then three three three-pointers made per game at 38%. So he's scoring twice in the the restricted area, twice in the short range, three times in the mid-range, and three times from the three-point line per game. That's outstanding balance. He's 39% on corner threes, 38% on above the break threes. Doesn't really have a weak spot on the floor. He's comfortable scoring from absolutely anywhere. That's the appeal with Devin Booker, and that's what allowed him to have such a dominant playoff run like he had in, in, uh, in 2021. Now, the one thing that can get a little tricky with Devin Booker is he does rely heavily on pull-up jump shooting. A good percentage of those shots, regardless of where they are on the floor, involve him getting to a spot and elevating over the top of a defender to knock down shots, even in the short to mid-range. You've probably seen it before, but Devin Booker will work you down to seven or eight feet, pump fake, pump fake, and then rise up over the top and take a jump shot. A good percentage of his offense comes from pull-up jump shooting. The tricky thing with that is even on your best day, you're going to miss some pull-up jump shots, right? Like, you know, any one of you guys out there who has any sort of pull-up jump shooting in your game, even if you're good at it, even if you work extremely hard, you're going to miss more than half of them. And what that means is you're going to have hot streaks where you're, you know, where you can go seven out of 10 or make a bunch in a row, but then you're also going to have cold streaks. In game six and game seven versus Dallas, 
He was three for 16 on pull-up jump shots. And when that failed him, he didn't have a backup option to go to. When you rely on pull-up jump shooting and the pull-up jump shot fails you, unless you're a great playmaker or you can live at the rim, you're not going to have a backup uh, a backup punch to go to. And Devin Booker has some balance to score at the rim, but he is not a guy who can live at the rim. And he's an okay playmaker, but he is not a good playmaker. And so that's why I've always prioritized is scores bigger wings, like the bigger, stronger rim pressuring wings, because when their jump shot starts to fail them, they can at least put their head down and go to the rim and have some impact collapsing the defense. And then that's where the playmakers in particular can bring great value. That's the, that's the story of LeBron James's career. When he's making his jump shot, there's absolutely nothing you can do with him. He's the best player in the world. But even when he's missing his jump shot, he's going to go eight for 22, which is solid. He's going to score 28 points. He's going to get to the foul line eight times, and he's going to have 11 assists. Like that's that's the dynamic of the big rim pressuring forward. That's so interesting is they have the ability to impact the game in so many different ways beyond that of a pull up jump shooter. Uh, Devin Booker, to his credit, has turned himself into a pretty solid on-ball defender. He's scrappy, he's physical, he uses his hands well, he's kind of a disruptive defender. He's only okay in help side defense, that's a little area of opportunity for him. And then just like every other guard in the league, he's susceptible to bigger wings in mismatch situations. You saw that a lot against Dallas, Luka punishing him under the basket for layups and and ones and things along those lines. So the question here is, can Devin Booker be the best player on a championship team? I don't think so. I think he's a number two. I don't think that's a hot take. I think most of you would probably agree. I think you either need to be a great playmaker or be a much, much bigger, stronger rim protector in order to be a, uh, to be a top tier, uh, a, a, the best player on a championship team as a scorer in the NBA. That's why I'm going to lean more towards the Kawhis and the Jason Tatums of the, and the Kevin Durants of the world as big scoring wings than the smaller guys like Devin Booker who basically have the same type of shot profile as those guys without the physicality to get easier shots around the rim and without the playmaking ability to make up for their lack of size. All right, number 14, Damian Lillard. Now, Dame is a top 10 player when he's healthy, but obviously he's dropping here because of health concerns. He's been saying things about how his abdominal muscles uh, has kind of healed itself. He shared some pretty crazy stories about having a big lump that he would see like in his stomach after games and stuff. That's freaky. Hopefully that's healed. Hopefully he'll be back on the horse. Now, the two previous seasons combined... He averaged 29 points, four rebounds, eight assists on 63% true shooting. That is ridiculously good. 40% on three, or excuse me, on 10 three point attempts per game. In the postseason, he averaged 34 and eight on 65% true shooting. He's also arguably the best pull-up jump shooter in the game of basketball. Over the course of those two seasons, he averaged over 10 pull-up jumpers per game and shot 40% on them. Now, there's a huge difference between pull-up shooting and spot-up shooting. I wanted to break this down because we're going to get into it a little bit deeper with Paul George. And I've actually been directly working on this with one of the college players that I've been working out with over the course of the summer, who's going from an off-ball role into an on-ball role this season. And so we're working on changing the shooting mechanics into the feel of shooting off the dribble versus shooting in spot-up situations. And it's super interesting to me because in spot-up shooting, it's very mechanical. You want muscle memory, you want as few moving parts as possible, and you want 
it to be as replicable as possible because at that point it's you're you're standing still waiting for the basketball and when the basketball comes to you you want to be able to unleash something that is a muscle memory thing that you've done thousands and thousands of times that is more reliable pull-up shooting is completely different there's a fluidity to it as opposed to a mechanical feel to it the reason why is the ball is always in a different spot depending on what your footwork is and what your dribble combination is in a spot up shooting situation you might catch it wherever you catch it you're bringing it to your shooting pocket and then you're starting your routine right but in an off the dribble situation I might be doing a behind the back dribble to my left hand and have the ball out here and have to flow right up into a shot or if I have it out here flow right up into a shot from the right side it's a completely different type of feel you can't can't be mechanical in pull-up shooting because if you are, if you take time to get set into your shot after every single dribble combination, you're never going to have enough time to get the shot off. And so what impresses me the most about Damian Lillard and Paul George, who we're going to get into here in a little bit, is they have remarkable fluidity into their pull-up jump shooting. Dame's uh, go-to move in pull-up jump shooting situations is he kind of lulls you to sleep with the dribble in his right hand and he does a hard pound dribble with his right hand and steps back to his right kicks his right foot out to help square up in midair and he knocks it down. There's a, I, I always have, am a nerd when it comes to the little details of skill development just because I, I personally, my archetype was always a scorer, so I'm always looking to add little like scoring moves and things to my game. And Dame's pound dribble step back to the right is one that I think every scorer should have in their game and I've always been very, very impressed by the fluidity in his jump shooting ability. Dame is every bit as good as Steph on the ball. The numbers are unassailable. Last two playoff runs, 30 points per game on 65% true shooting, eight assists per game, a knockdown pull-up jump shooter. He's every bit as good as Steph on the ball. But why is he usually hovering around the 10th best player in the league while Steph is in the conversation for the best player in the league? Well, that's the best example of the differences between focusing on the aesthetically appealing things in basketball and the things that actually impact winning. You guys probably remember the Mike James quote that came out the other day saying that Steph was one-dimensional. A couple of different interesting things there. One, that's the best example I can give you that playing the game of basketball has nothing to do with your understanding of the game. Mike James is a very successful basketball player who has played in the NBA before. If you think Steph is one-dimensional, you do not understand what you are seeing. Okay, That's why I, I, I give a great deal of respect to the people out there who have not played the game, but that have taken the time to try to learn the game. So Because it's, just, it's, it's a lot easier said than done, and it does take a lot of work to understand what you're seeing on the basketball court. But even in that specific case, uh, a, a, Steph is an excellent scorer, and we just talked about that with Dame on the same level as Steph, and Steph demonstrated that in this playoff run, particularly in the NBA Finals against Boston's drop coverage, just routinely barbecuing them for going underneath screening actions and things along those lines. But Steph has always been massively underrated with his winning characteristics, the little things he does to impact winning. And that's not just his leadership even though he's one of the best leaders in the game of basketball. It's not just his mentality and his competitive nature and any of those things, even though that's as good as you'll find in the game of basketball. It's actual on-the-court work. First of all, Steph is considerably bigger than Dame. He's six foot three and pretty well built. He's also very committed to the defensive end of the floor. That has turned Steph into an above average defensive guard in this league. Dame is in the bottom tier of defensive guards in the league. He's a good athlete, but he's pretty undersized. He's much smaller than Steph. That makes it tougher for him to hold his own in positional defensive situations. Guys can go through and around him pretty easily. And then lastly, the moving without the basketball. 
Steph Curry is the best off-ball guard in the league, and Dame Lillard seems pretty uninterested in doing that. Moving without the basketball is super important for a bunch of different reasons. First of all, it helps create quality shots for yourself. Pull-up jump shooting, like we talked about earlier, is hard. The shot profile is hard. It's not reliable. Sometimes they'll go in, sometimes they won't. So you need to supplement your offense with easy looks. For bigger rim-pressuring forwards, that's living at the rim. That's putting your head down and going through people to try to get layups. For a guy like Steph, he does it by moving without the basketball. He's going to get himself three or four wide open threes a game just by constantly staying in motion and capitalizing on defenders having brief lapses in attention. And when they had that brief, those brief lapses in attention, he sparks open for a second, Draymond or someone else hits him, he knocks down a three. That's how you supplement the more difficult areas of your offensive attack with easy shots. And then secondly, it's the decoy effect. We've all seen this with Steph a million times, but he'll come running off a screen, and the guy who's setting the screen, his man will go out with Steph, and then Steph's man will go out with Steph. And then all of a sudden, whoever's setting the screen, maybe it's Kevon Looney or Draymond Green or somebody, they just flash to the basket, they're wide open for a dunk. That decoy, uh, the decoy attention that Steph draws moving without the basketball creates shots for his teammates, and then he also creates open shots for himself to help supplement his offense. Dame Lillard has everything he needs to do that. He's such a deadly shooter that if he embraced that off-ball movement, he would generate himself easier shots throughout the game, and he would get his teammates open looks. But for whatever reason, he's been pretty uninterested in doing that. And so that's that's the biggest area of opportunity for Dame, and I'm not sure if he'll ever take advantage of that, but if he does, I don't think he could ever be in the same conversation as Steph because of his defensive limitations, but he could get up into that sixth or seventh best player in the league if he started doing those things. You've seen what Steph is capable of offensively. He's arguably, he, I, I would say he is the best offensive engine in basketball right now. Dame could be a nearly as impactful offensive engine if he embraced those winning things that Steph does without the basketball. So what can the Blazers accomplish this year? They're actually putting together, they actually have put together a pretty interesting roster. I really, really like the Jeremy Grant trade. I think he's a perfect number two to have alongside Dame. He's, he had a rough year last year because of injuries, but the previous year he demonstrated that he can be a relatively efficient volume scorer. So you put him alongside Dame, Jeremy Grant and Dame. Anthony Simons has blossomed into a pretty decent scoring guard in the NBA. So you've got three pretty good scoring options. Uh, Jeremy Grant is a capable defensive player, and they added some really important role players over the course of the last couple of years. The Josh Hart acquisition, I really appreciated. I think that's going to help them a lot. Josh Hart, Josh Hart is a solid 3 and D wing in this league. And Gary Payton the second. This is a player that I wanted the Warriors to keep. I was really disappointed in them for letting him go. I pointed out the numbers to you guys, but the difference between the way the Warriors played in this postseason run with Gary Payton on the floor versus Gary Payton off the floor was jarring. He's an impact playoff player in the NBA right now. A perfect guy to put alongside Dame on the wing or in the backcourt to help him with all of the dirty work responsibilities on the floor. And then Yusuf Nurkic is a fine role player center in this league. Shaden Sharp, he got he ended up getting hurt, I believe. He had like a, a shoulder injury or something along those lines in summer league. But he's a really intriguing young player. 
very high ceiling, low floor type of guy. He could be like a more athletic version of Devin Booker as a guy who creates shots off the dribble, who uh, has a ton of fluidity with the basketball and is a fantastic athlete. But there's also a version of his story where he becomes Kevin Porter Jr. So it's because maybe he just doesn't pick up on the maturity necessary to become a winning basketball player. So it's an interesting prospect there to kind of potentially extend their window if he pans out into a decent player. What does that make them? If Dame can recapture what he was before he was hurt and Jeremy Grant's the player from two years ago and Anthony Simons is the the type of scorer that he was this last year and if Gary Payton and Josh Hart stay healthy on the wing and they do their job defending, they're absolutely in the mix as a middle-tier uh, playoff team in the West. I wouldn't put them near the Clippers or the Warriors, but they're absolutely uh, in that tier with like Denver and maybe the Lakers if they if they make a decent trade this offseason. That's how much I respect Dame Lillard and what he can do with the basketball. All right, number 13, John Morant. This regular season, 27, 6, and 7 on 58% true shooting. This playoff run, 27, 8, and 10 on 55% true shooting. Shot 34% from three in the regular season and in the playoffs, and he went up in volume a little bit in the playoffs. That's good and bad. It's good in the sense that his stroke translates to the playoffs in terms of his confidence. Like it's not like his shot, it's not like his shot fell apart when he got to the playoffs. The bad there is 34% is not good enough. So he will eventually need to get that up to about 37, 38% to get teams to really respect him and guard him more uh, intentionally out there. Um, I, I told you guys about how I, I thought a really interesting element of John Morant's potential development is the fact that he's impossible to officiate because he's so skinny and he goes flying through the lane and can fall down a lot and the refs just don't know what to do. I compared him to Dwayne Wade in that respect. Now, it didn't materialize in a finals run the way it did for a championship run the way it did for Dwayne Wade, but he did go up to 10 free throw attempts per game in the postseason. That's an excellent sign of of, of replicable, dependable offense uh, for the Grizzlies in later attempts to to make deeper runs into the playoffs. He's just... He's just impossible to contain with a live dribble at the top of the key. If he gets a live dribble and the floor is spaced and he's working against any defender in the league, he's getting into the paint, he's getting dribble penetration, he's going to make something happen. Couple that with his athleticism and the way he flies through the lane, he's going to draw a ton of fouls. He's your classic hyper-athletic slashing guard, right in the mold of Derrick Rose and John Wall and Russell Westbrook. Obviously, there's little differences between those guys and Jaw. Like Wall and Westbrook were more big and strong. Rose was a little, it was skinnier, kind of like Jaw. Um, Jaw, I think, is the best passer out of any of them, except for maybe Westbrook. Although I, I can be critical of Westbrook's passing sometimes because I think it's a little reactionary. It's a, it's a little bit like a. Uh, of reactive as the people in the in the comments try to tell me last show, uh, he's he's a little bit of like a he'll pass when he has to kind of guy. I, I I find John Morant to be a little bit more willing of a passer, and so with his ability to collapse the defense by getting into the paint, that can be really impactful. And then his rim for, his rim finishing <clears throat> his rim finishing is outstanding. He was. Uh, uh, he was finishing 5.3 layups in the restricted area per game in the regular season, and that only dropped to 4.3 in the playoffs. Now, in the playoffs, typically the teams scout more and they pack the paint more. That's why you're going to see that little bit of a drop-off, but that's not much of a drop-off. He was getting into the basket. Now, his percentages dropped. He shot 67% in the restricted area in the regular season. That dropped up 52% in the postseason, but that's offset a bit by the free throws. Like a lot of those drives are ending in him getting fouled and going to the foul line in that specific free throw in that specific postseason. So 
52%, you'd like to see that a little higher, but him getting to the line, him making 4.3 layups per game and getting to the line 10 times per game, there's no way I can twist that into anything but a massive positive for him as one of the most dynamic rim attackers that we have in the league. Now, this is a crazy stat. So in the clutch, in this postseason run, per 36 minutes, so if I took just his clutch minutes and extrapolated them out to what he would typically play in a game, so 36 minutes, his per 36 minutes in the clutch this year in the postseason were 55 points, 13 rebounds, and 7 assists. So his production in his clutch minutes mimics that of a player who in a 36-minute game would average 55 points per game and 13 rebounds and 7 assists. In clutch situations in this postseason, he shot 52% from the field and 50% from three. That's ridiculous. So that's another huge thing if you're a Memphis Grizzlies fan, uh, a Memphis Grizzlies fan to cling to. Jaw looks like a comfortable and confident clutch basketball player in the NBA playoffs. But the big negative with Jaw, and this is something he's going to eventually have to figure out. He's a little too skinny right now. That that's going to be a big part, and then a commitment from him in terms of, of his uh, the way he allocates his resources and his energy. He's a just flat-out bad defensive player right now. He's bad at the point of attack. He's bad in help. He has some highlight shot blocks from time to time, but he's not a, a, like a voluminous shot blocker. He, in, this, in this playoff series against Minnesota this year, Patrick Beverly was straight up looking him in the eye and dog-walking him down to the rim and scoring. Like just He couldn't do anything to contain Patrick Beverly. That's a problem. Patrick Beverly is a below-average offensive guard in this league. So he's absolutely going to have to figure out that defensive piece to reach his ultimate ceiling. So I compared him to Derrick Rose, Russell Westbrook, and John Wall. I think he has the potential to be better than any of those guys. He already has better shooting form, which I think will translate to him being a a knockdown three-point shooter uh, later on in his career. And he's better in the short range than any of them, stopping short and getting to little floaters and push shots in the lane. He's already better than any of those guys were, especially at his age, at that specific skill right now. He's a better passer than Rose and Russ. Uh, Rose and Wall were. I think he will be a better passer than Russ in the long run. If he can figure out the defensive piece and get his jump shot to where I believe it can get, he has the potential to win multiple MVPs and be a better player than any of those guys were at any of their peaks. Number 12. This one's going to be a little controversial for some of you guys, but I've always valued this player particularly. Brandon Ingram. So, in this regular season, he averaged 23-6-6 and on 55% true shooting. Somewhat underwhelming, right? Um, but his breakout came in this postseason run. He was there are a handful of breakout players in this postseason run: Anthony Edwards, Jalen Brown, you know, I, John Morant, obviously, in his first postseason run, their second postseason run. But Brandon Ingram was magnificent in this playoff run: twenty-seven six and six on fifty-eight percent true shooting against the third-ranked defense in the NBA, and his primary defender finished second in Defensive Player of the Year voting. That's Mikael Bridges. This was his coming out party. Really, really versatile scoring. He averaged 2.5 made restricted area field goal attempts or made restricted area field goals per game at 83%. That's unbelievably good. He averaged 3.7 made mid-range shots per game at 50%. That's unbelievably good. And then the the thing that stood out to me the most, and you guys will remember me talking about this during um, uh, during the first round when we were doing our post-game shows, he flashed high-end playmaking. 
we have a lot of wings in this league. Guys like Paul George, guys like Kawhi Leonard, guys like Kevin Durant, guys like Jason Tatum that can pass, but they're clearly like reactive passers that are just making reads, right? Just the basic reads that come from the way that defenses collapse on them. Brandon Ingram is flashing higher level playmaking than even that. Now, what makes it interesting to me is his age. Like I've seen Kevin Durant in the late stage of his career start to flash this higher level playmaking. But for Brandon Ingram at his age to start to show this is super impressive. And again, it's like Luka Doncic, LeBron James-esque high pick and roll reads. He's getting that ball screen. He's working it down to the elbow. He's being patient. He's putting the defender in jail on his backside. He's waiting to bait the uh, the rim protector into stepping up and waiting for the weak side corner guy to, st- uh, to step in to help against the lob threat. And he's throwing like a big looping across court pass that hits the shooter in the pocket in the weak side corner. These are high level reads from the best playmakers in the league that I was seeing from Brandon Ingram in that playoff series against the Suns. That's what excites me the most. To be that good around the rim, 2.5 makes at 83%. To be a knockdown mid-range jump shooter, 3.7 made attempts or made uh, uh, shots at 50%. And to be flashing that type of high-level playmaking, that's like that's top-tier superstar stuff. And he's not a top-tier super, superstar yet. He has to be consistent in that regard. But that's why I have him all the way up here at number 12. He showed something in that playoff run that demonstrated to me that he's poised to take a big leap this season. And I believe he will. He was an impact defensive player against the Suns in that playoff series, albeit as a weakness, he's a little bit inconsistent on the defensive end. Ever since he left the Lakers in 2019, he had a great defensive season and he kind of let go of the rope there for a little while, but he flashed that potential again against the Suns. So that'll be a huge thing for him is defensive consistency. The one other uh, weakness that I wanted to point out, he was 32% on above the break threes in both the regular season and the playoffs. He's knocked down three-point shooter from the corner and he's a knockdown mid-range shooter, but he struggles above the break. Who does that remind you of? Mr. DeMar DeRozan. And if you watch them, they both have similar jump shot form in the sense that they shoot high above their head and they catapult forward. It's lower arc. Now, lower arc actually is less of an issue the closer you are to the basket because you have more margin for error in there. But when you get further away from the rim, you need more arc on the basketball. That's going to be something that Brandon's going to have to figure out because as we pointed out with DeMar DeRozan earlier, that inability to score from the uh, above the break as a three-point shooter, particularly off the dribble, will really hurt your ability to get downhill. I don't want Brandon Ingram to become the next DeMar DeRozan. I want him to show more of that Paul George fluidity scoring from the three-point line above the break. So getting that above the break three-point shot figured out and getting the uh, getting more consistent defensively, showing what he did in that postseason run consistently for 82 games. That's the difference between where he is and getting into the top 10. Also, his rim finishing, he shot extremely well in that playoff series, 83%, but he was only 67% in the regular season. And as you guys know, when it comes to guys 6'8 and above, big rim attacking forwards, I like to see that number higher than 70%. But he's just a little—he's a little thin, so that's going to hurt him a little bit. But I'd like to see him getting a little bit better at finishing around the rim. So I'm super high on Brandon Ingram, obviously. 
This is why I thought the Pelicans should trade Zion Williamson for Kevin Durant. I'm worried about Zion's health. I'm worried about Zion's ability to eventually become an impact defensive player. I'm worried about how long it'll be before he can really, really, really help them on a championship level. And they've got such a good roster around that with CJ McCollum and with Herb Jones and with Trey Murphy. I, I love the way that roster is put together. So I like the idea of pairing Brandon Ingram with Kevin Durant. And you can do that by trading Zion and and and, and getting Kevin Durant back, it's a super, uh, it's a super interesting potential dynamic there with the two of them. They, I, I'm not sure how it would work with salary filler if they'd have to include CJ or something along those lines. But I'm super high on Brandon Ingram. The idea of pairing him with Kevin Durant and two really good three and D players sounds like a championship level roster to me. Um, but it seems to me like if the Pelicans make the deal, they'd include Brandon, which I think would be a mistake. Uh, but it is what it is. All right, number eleven, our last player that did not make the top ten. Paul George, 24-7-6 and six on 54% true shooting this regular season. In his defense, it was completely injury-riddled. He only played 31 games. But in the 2021 playoffs, so the playoff series before this season, he averaged 27-10-5 on 58% true shooting, which is excellent. He had a bad playoff reputation leading into that playoff run. I think he had lost five consecutive playoff series going into that playoff run, if I remember correctly. Or going into the 2020 bubble when they made it to the second round to lose to Denver. They had lost five consecutive playoff series. So call that six out of his previous seven playoff series. He had lost. He had struggled in a lot of those situations. He got locked up by Joe Ingles in a series against the Utah Jazz. It was all bad. And he had a bad reputation. And in one playoff run, he demonstrated that he was no longer that guy. He demonstrated that he was capable of being that best guy on a championship team level player when he took the the Clippers within two wins of the NBA Finals without Kawhi Leonard. I thought the big change for him that allowed him to change that perception of himself was making a concerted effort to get to the rim. He averaged 1.8 made shots in the restricted area in the 2020 season. He averaged 2.9 in 2021. That's literally 150% of what he did the previous season. That's a significant increase. Why does that matter? Because do you guys remember when I was talking about the give and take with Pascal Siakam and with James Harden? The need to have a threat to counter your primary strength so that players can't sit on your primary strength? We're going to talk about it in a minute. Paul George is one of the best pull-up jump shooters that I've seen. And he's as fluid as it gets at getting to his uh, jump shot off the dribble. So if players are not scared of him going to the basket, they can press up into his jump shot more. That makes it harder for him to get separation. It makes it harder for him to knock down shots. Him making that concerted effort in 2021 to get to the rim completely changed the type of basketball player that he was and turned him from an inconsistent, unreliable playoff player into a dominant playoff basketball player. 2.9 made shots in the restricted area per game in the playoffs is outstanding. And so that move counter move concept, adding the threat of consistently going to the rim, transformed Paul George. Now, like I talked about earlier, that fluidity in the handle and jump shooting compared to spot up shooting, I think the best guy to uh, to uh, replicate in this specific skill is Paul George. Like I told you guys, obviously I'm not an NBA player, but the player that I think I play closest to when I'm playing pickup is Paul George, and that specific concept of fluidity into his jump shot is what I try to build in my game. The advantage of being able to pull up out of any footwork and any dribble combination is it makes it so that you can be reactive as an offensive player. 
Because when you hit a dribble combination, you don't know where the defender is going to buckle. So for instance, if I do in and out, through the legs to the left, and behind my back to the right, he might lunge at the in and out, he might lunge at the cross, he might lunge at the behind the back. I'm not sure. But wherever he is, I need to be able to transfer energy from that specific spot to either advance the basketball or to go up into a jump shot. That's where that fluidity comes in. I need to always be a threat at any point in time with the basketball to either advance to the basket or to go up into a jump shot. And Paul George, I think, is one of the best in the league at this, particularly at the wing position. And that fluidity just makes him so much fun to watch. His dribble combination jumpers, I could watch a highlight film of that with Paul George all day long. He's a deeply impactful defensive wing. I'll never forget watching him in Oklahoma City just completely lock down James Harden at the peak of his powers. Like, it's just a a joy to watch him defensively. He's somewhat limited as a playmaker, but like we talked about earlier, almost every scoring wing in the league is like that. We just talked about Brandon Ingram showing flashes of being kind of better and Kevin Durant being better in the late portion of his career. But just for most big scoring wings, it's just not something that's a strength for them. He's a damn good basketball player, and him being outside of the top 10 is everything you need to know about how talented the league is right now. So the big question, is this the year the Clippers can win the title? So you got Kawhi Leonard, Reggie Jackson, and Paul George, excellent trio there at the top of the, uh, at the, top of the roster as offensive creators. And then they have as deep a repertoire of, of 3 and D wings that you'll find in the league. Robert Covington, Norman Powell, Nick Batum, Terrence Mann, Marcus Morris, Luke Kennard, and then Zubak, I, I really like as a center in this league. So they can play big and play drop coverage with Zubak, or they can go five out, you know, classic Ty Lue basketball, switch everything and, and mismatch attack on the other end of the floor. It, it, I, they have one of my favorite roster constructions in the league. It captures my specific basketball philosophy that I believe in so much. I've said it before, but I think the Clippers are the biggest threat in the Western Conference to beat the Warriors, and I absolutely view them as a top-tier contender. And Ty Lue, as I mentioned earlier, is one of my favorite uh, young coaches in the league. I think he's got a very modern approach, very uniquely equipped to handle modern basketball, and his roster is perfectly catered to the way he likes to coach the game. I'm very, very high on the Clippers, and Paul George is as good a number 11 that you'll find in NBA history. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. Next week, we'll be doing the top 10. We're going to be spending a lot more time on those guys, especially when we get to the top five. I have some special plans. As always, I appreciate your guys' support. We'll see you in a couple of days. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new natural hybrid mattress, it can. 
A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the natural hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Visit lisa.com forward slash hoops to learn more. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com forward slash H-O-O-P-S. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done.